Please turn with me to this little book, this little letter of Philemon. The opening credits finally come to an end. The movie finally is beginning. What we see is a dimly lit path, and we see a man running, running down. He's panting. He's out of breath. He's far from home, and he's running scared because he is a fugitive of the law. He has stolen money in his pockets and stolen bread in his bags. Still panting, he knocks on the door of somebody that he hopes will help him out. A man answers the door, and that man is chained to another man, a Roman guard. The man who opens the door is none other than the Apostle Paul. Welcome to the book of Philemon. Whether or not things were quite that dramatic, they may not have been, they may actually have been, we never know. But this story is incredibly vivid and exciting. This short book is an example of the Apostle Paul demonstrating in living color, rather than expending lots of words teaching something, he chooses rather to live it, to demonstrate it. This little book illustrates for us the gospel's power to restore, to reconcile, and to recapture Christian relationships. Ultimately, the book of Philemon slips its way into the cracks of the New Testament, much like maybe a, a, hot, a hot dog stand finds its way between huge skyscrapers in a downtown metropolis. You've got the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus, and then right between them, here's the book of Hebrews on the other side. So it's not a secret that this little book is easily forgotten in our New Testaments. It has just one chapter and just a few main characters, just a few main points, but a semi-truck load of application for us as God's people. So our goal is to spend this Sunday and next Sunday looking at this one little book, mining its depths, hopefully, for its meaning and its application for us as God's people. So before we get busy doing that, would you just bow and pray with me that God's Spirit would teach us and that we would see exactly what we need to see from His Word this morning. Father, as we just sang in the song, All I Have is Christ, we were running a totally opposite direction of You, and You came and captured our hearts, much like the Scripture reading we just heard. The Apostle Paul would undoubtedly sing, All I Have is Christ, louder than any of us, because that's his story, and how he chose to both live and to teach is remarkable. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit's power to see maybe things we don't currently see. Help us to learn and to want to know more deeply this amazing treasure that's tucked away in our New Testaments. I pray that we'd have hearts that are diligent to, to think during this hour, to, to truly understand with a, a soft heart what you have for us individually and personally, as well as collectively as a church family. We ask this in faith that you will do it. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's read this whole book together right now. 
Not quite as impressive as last week, the book of Romans, but we can read the whole book together right now, Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own owing me, even your own self? Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will, graciously, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's helpful for us to gain a bit of an overview and a backdrop before we jump into this book. The Bible class currently that is meeting now, hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for meaning, understanding, and applying the Bible has been working through some of the helpfulness that it is to learn some of the historical backdrop, some of what was going on at the time that the Scriptures were written. Some areas of the Bible require more or less of this kind of information. But Philemon is certainly a book where historical background is just really, really helpful. So if we're going to understand this book together over the next couple weeks, we need to get a sense for what was, what was just normal and even the social structures of the ancient Greco-Roman world. 
So the world in which Paul would preach and teach, uh, the world in which he would travel and and work his tent-making business and experience great suffering and heartache and difficulty in travel, all these things, let's get to know his world a little bit better. Well, one of the pitfalls to avoid when we're studying the Bible or any passage of Scripture is taking an idea or a concept that is familiar to us over here and reading it into what we think ought to have just been common knowledge at the time the authors were written. Fancy word for this is anachronism. It's not in chronology. We're taking things that we might stand upon today and forcing them back in. We have to really avoid that when we jump into Philemon. To illustrate, there's just no getting around the fact that slavery is the canvas that the story of Philemon is painted upon. It is. We have to know that. And so we must first begin by asking, so what did slavery look like in this first century world that Paul is so familiar with? Well, as easy as it is, we cannot begin to immediately assume that our understanding of slavery, even in the early years of this nation, is a perfect fit, a perfect picture of how slavery would have worked in Paul's day. So what was it like? Well, with the expansion of the Roman Empire came this ever-growing category of conquered peoples who were, instead of being just killed off, they were made into living tools, as Aristotle called them. A slave was given no legal rights and was under the complete control of his or her master. At the time Philemon was written, it was estimated that upwards of a third of Rome was technically enslaved, with a whole other large category that had formerly been enslaved. This was a massive percentage of this epicenter of the world at that time. Slaves, however, were incredibly valuable, fulfilling roles that ran the full gamut of society from the near-death sentence of working the salt mines all the way up to high government officials in, in Rome. Many slaves were farmers, they were household managers, skilled craftsmen, sea captains, accountants, teachers, businessmen, and even trained doctors and physicians. Some slaves even had far more power than free men. Slave owners had ample motivation to treat their slaves well. So if you think about it, these were expensive prized possessions. And just like that car that sits under a cover in a garage, you want to keep it in mint condition. You're self-motivated to protect what you are vested deeply into. Whether for right or wrong, that's what it was. Education was highly encouraged, for it made slaves that much more valuable to their masters. As one man wrote, by, uh, wrote Uh, By no means were the enslaved considered the lowest rung of even society. Unlike slavery in the United States, enslaved people were not recognized by their race or by their attire or by any other external feature. They were as diverse as the cities in which they lived. But the main difference between our our understanding and our recent sort of encounter and interaction with slavery from recent days, especially in this country, is the fact that one's freedom could be attained. One's freedom could be purchased. The form of indentured servanthood would typically last around 10 years, 
And nearly all slaves were freed by the time they were at the end of their late 30s or so. This was just normal. Furthermore, it was common for individuals to put themselves under the ownership of a wealthy master who would house them, feed them, employ them, and oftentimes educate them and train them. So it's just, we just can't. We lack the categories for that, just as they lack the categories for today. It was just so different. In some areas, there's overlap, of course, but it's such a different thing to, to willingly see this as, as my ticket to rise the social ladder. I will become a slave because, hey, this is fully funded education. This is, I am getting top-notch skill training that once I get out of this condition, I'm going to be able to hop into a whole new career, fully trained, ready to go. It was just a different mentality. It's good for us to see. This was quite a different social structure than slavery of today, even especially, especially against what we think of that word today. We think of sex trafficking. We think of slave trading from Britain and the Americas. We might even think of the sort of enslavement that the people of Israel had under Pharaoh in Egypt, which even then was quite different. Many often struggle with why the Bible is not more outspoken against the evils of slavery. I mean, even in this letter of Philemon, who, who's apparently the spirit-filled exemplary Christian who owns slaves. We, how, how does that go together? We struggle with that. Why is Paul not more insistent on immediate reform in the same way he calls out immorality in other areas of the Bible? Well, two brief ideas. This is, this is kind of an introductory aside that just is helping frame up where we're heading to help us understand the book. Just two ideas. For starters, like I mentioned earlier, a culture void of indentured servanthood or slavery at the time would not have even come up on the radar screen of, of these early Christians. It just wasn't a concept that they would have had categories for. Freedom oftentimes meant placing oneself in a far more precarious situation, financially and socially, than the comforts of being technically enslaved. So then to wish that status upon everybody at the drop of a hat, why, why would you do that? That's incredibly damaging on so many people, friends and family, they would have thought. Secondly, a largely persecuted group of Christians most readily understood their calling before God, not so much in terms of social reform, but as looking long to their eternal home, not to the world that is, but to the world that is to come. So longing for Christ's return, seeking to, to live as the family of God in a way that pleased Him, this, this was where they set their sails. This is what concerned them more than anything. Much more could be said on this, much more has been written on this, but lest we digress, let's take this as helpful backdrop to now understanding the book of Philemon. The reason I did that is because many can take this as the, uh, that's all the book is about, is an escape from slavery. Or actually, I think there's far more going on here. Let's get to know the main characters of our story first. We see, first of all, these three gentlemen. We'll start on the far left there, the Apostle Paul, 
probably the most familiar to us. The year is approximately A.D. 62, and Paul is most likely in Rome as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, a designation he brings out more than once in the book. Paul may not have been in an official prison cell. He could have been under house arrest, as the illustration at the beginning indicated. He could have been chained to a Roman guard uh, in rented quarters or something like that. But he calls himself an old man. And from what we can best guess, it's just two, three more years, and he's going to be martyred in Rome. He writes to Philemon, as well as Aphia, you read there. Perhaps this is Philemon's wife, and Archippus, possibly Philemon's son, and to the rest of the church that meets in Philemon's home. So, although Paul's words in this letter are about an emotionally charged interpersonal conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, Paul expects this letter to be read to the whole church. Perhaps it had become somewhat of a, a huge deal. We don't know. But then by extension, God intends for us to know of this, this issue, this infraction, this, this situation between these two men so we might know something about the power of the gospel. We see next Philemon, far right there. As we just read a few moments ago, Philemon is a wealthy slave-holding businessman who lives in the city of Colossae. Apparently, during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, which was located about a about hundred miles away, so here you can see Philemon and Onesimus, Paul's in Rome. These cities only about a hundred miles away. So Philemon, most likely, he heard the gospel and became a believer under Paul's ministry. Paul claims that to be the case even in the end of, end of the book of Philemon. He certainly, he certainly has the gift of hospitality and encouragement. We know that because not only does the church meet in his home, which those of you who host anything from time to time, you know, that just takes a little bit of prep. That takes some generosity of your home being opened up, and the church met there. But he has this widespread reputation. Everybody knows Philemon is a person who refreshes people's hearts. What an amazing thing to be known for, right? It would seem that Philemon was a successful, wealthy businessman who came to understand that his wealth was nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. And now his whole life is oriented towards seeing the gospel go forward. This is who this man is. He's no struggling Christian from any indicators that we have. He is a solid man of God. Onesimus. Onesimus was a bondservant to his master Philemon. And as a Phrygian slave, Phrygia would have been located somewhere kind of up in this general area to the north, Onesimus bore the stereotype, a stereotype of being, as the proverb goes, most useful for beatings. They were notorious for maybe being lazy or defiant, or that was just sort of a reputation that he bore with him. But his name, Onesimus, a very common name, meant useful, sort of the opposite. So as a slave, we have no idea what Onesimus's profession was. It could have been anything. But we do know that Onesimus had gone AWOL, absent without leave. 
So whether we, he was sent by Philemon on a mission, which would not have been uncommon, to go do something or to go accomplish a certain task, and he just never came back, or whether it was under the cover of darkness in the middle of the night, he packed his bags and took a few things and got out of town. We don't know. We're not told. But we do know he fled his post along with his responsibilities, which certainly meant Philemon had, wronged, had been wronged financially and personally. So Philemon had every right by law to now take Onesimus' life if he so desired. So Onesimus is running scared, and he flees then to Rome. Probably for the benefit of anonymity, he can blend in to the million or so people that are there. But in God's providence, he encounters the Apostle Paul. Could be that he knew the Apostle Paul from the time earlier when he was in town. He was preaching and that there is a knowledge that he might be perhaps a mediator of some issue that was going on. We don't know. But he found him. Their paths crossed. And Paul tells him what his greatest need is. Your greatest need isn't what's going on here, Philemon. Your greatest need is that you need Jesus Christ. You need Him. You need to repent of your sins and become a Christian. And that apparently is what happened. So one of the most instructive and staggering aspects about this short story, though, is how Paul goes about his appeal to Philemon. It's nothing short of a timeless and masterful case study and how to, how to persuade without browbeating or title-waving or manipulating or anything like that while still making a strong appeal grounded in the truth. Watch how Paul does this. We begin in verses 1 through 7. We see Paul commend Philemon. Paul most certainly would concur with the Apostle John's words, that he takes no greater joy than knowing that his children walk in truth. So Philemon is Paul's son in the faith, given the fact that he led him to Christ. So both of these individuals, Paul is their spiritual father, you might say. He calls Philemon his, fellow, his beloved fellow worker, his beloved fellow worker. And Paul thanks God for Philemon's love and faith toward Christ and all the saints. He prays in verse 6, follow along there, the sharing, he prays that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, what do we probably mean when we say the phrase, uh, pray, for, pray for me, that I am diligent in sharing my faith this week. You probably have a concept that I'm sharing it with someone that maybe currently does not trust in the gospel, right? We think of it more in terms of that evangelistic uh, aspect, but that's not what's going on here. Paul's praying that the fellowship, the sharing, the fellowship or the partnership or the generosity that these people have come to have a good reputation to be known by, he's praying that this would, the, the fuse would become lit and that it would take off and become effective and it would give rise to full knowledge of every good deed 
so that this fellowship that they're known for would truly come alive. In verse 7, Paul speaks of his own experience. He says, personally, I have derived so much joy and comfort from your love, especially because he keeps hearing story after story after story after story of people who they, they just point right back and say, those people refreshed my heart. I was just so encouraged after I spent time with them. Eden Baptist Church, God help us have that reputation. Not that we seek it per se, but that by seeking Him, it happens. Do we refresh the hearts of the saints? When missionaries visit with us, do we refresh them physically and spiritually? When we sense among one another a tiredness and fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, what do you do? Are you a refresher? Do you come after people to refresh their hearts? Do you send an email? Do you write a note? Do you ask them over for dinner or out for coffee? Do you pursue others? Do you refresh the hearts of the saints? What a wonderful thing to be known for. So essentially, Paul is saying, you guys are known for love and faith towards your fellow believers. I love that. Good job. I mean, you guys know how to encourage and refresh people with the best of them. There's hardly been a better example. But if that's really true, I've got somebody in mind that's really going to push the envelope on that. His name is, drumroll, Onesimus. Whoa. Room gets quiet. Excuse me? See, this is where Paul's beginning to tip his hat in the direction of where he's going. He's saying, let's, let's prove it. Let's prove it when it's really, really painful and difficult. In verses 8 through 20, we'll not stretch that far today. We'll leave a little bit for next week. But in verses 8 through 20, Paul appeals to Philemon. He hits the gas now, and he launches into the main thrust of why he's writing this letter to begin with. And he says in verse 8 that he's plenty bold enough in Christ to command Philemon to do what is required. That's not what he does. He says, on the basis of love, or for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul says he's just an old man who's in prison for Christ. And he's had the joy of seeing Onesimus trust in the gospel. So why does Paul suspend his authority as an apostle in favor of this softer approach? I mean, Paul's a tough guy, right? I mean, he doesn't pull punches or beat around the bush when firm speech is in order. He gets right to it. And yet, he respectfully tells Philemon, he appeals to him on the basis of love. So Paul's love for Philemon, his love for Onesimus, and his resolute confidence in the power of the gospel assures his own heart that throwing down his legitimate credentials is not necessary in this case. He knows that if Onesimus is going to be forgiven and received as a brother in Christ by Philemon, 
We're not quite there yet in the text, but when he says he was, he was gone for you for a while, but now to be received as a brother forever, he's drawing a distinction. There's no way an executive order coming down from the Apostle Paul is going to sustain treating this man forever as a beloved brother. It's got to come from his heart. So Paul zeroes in on this appeal on the basis of love. He doesn't leave room one bit for Philemon to ever say, you know what, at the end of the day, I was strong-armed into this by Paul. But because Philemon was now in Christ, Paul's confidence lies in the power of the gospel to redefine what forgiveness looks like between these two parties in conflict. Paul continues in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So an amazing thought, isn't it? A runaway, useless slave is now a valuable asset in the personal life of the Apostle Paul. Unbelievable. Here Paul makes a word play off of the meaning of Onesimus' name, useful. While his own actions, while Onesimus' own actions and his cultural baggage the stereotype of his entire people group shouted, useless. The gospel was now transforming this slave's heart into a useful gospel tool. Now, perhaps you can relate to Onesimus. Do you feel shame over sinful choices you've made in the past? He likely did. Perhaps you majorly struggle to accept life's painful circumstances that are just out of your control. How do you think he felt? He was a slave. Do you hear yourself saying, you have no idea what my past looks like. I'm just damaged goods from all the suffering that I've been through. If you're God's child, hear me out on this. If you are God's child, whether you've suffered a little or a lot, you are not useless in God's kingdom. The question for you to wrestle with is just how powerful do you think the gospel is? Don't miscalculate its power to transform. Paul tells Philemon in verse 12 that he's sending him back He's sending him back to Philemon, sending his very heart. This term of endearment shows just how deep Paul's love for Onesimus runs. Paul doesn't have the power, if you think about it, to forcibly do that. He ran away once, he could ran, run away again, right? So it definitely says something about the confidence that Paul has in the transformation that has taken place in this former slave. Paul even trusted he and Tychicus, which we know at the end of Colossians, to transport not only this letter to take it back from Rome to Colossae, but also the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians. That's putting a lot of faith in somebody. 
Do you like the book of Ephesians? Do you like the book of Colossians? Do you like Philemon? You wouldn't have them if Paul would have known that this guy is a shady character and might have just grabbed him and burned him and gotten rid of it and done something crazy. <laughs> That's a lot of faith in this man. Notice that Paul recognizes that there is a need for the right thing, though, to still be done in this situation. He writes in verses 13 to 14, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So just think how convenient it would have been for Paul to just keep him with him. Just keep him. He's over a thousand miles from Colossae. Paul's clearly under duress, experiencing hard times. He knows Philemon. He would want him to have him with him, right? One could hardly fault Paul for beginning to rationalize that since Philemon already assumes Onesimus is probably either dead or, you know, gone forever, it would probably only unsettle him needlessly over this whole matter. And this whole legal and, and relational upheaval, why, why even bother? He's doing a great job here. Let's just… No. Expediency does not win the day for Paul. He knows that even God's grace saving a soul does not eliminate the need to make things right. Onesimus had to swallow his pride, pack his bags, face his fears, and return home. Perhaps he was at a place where he was eager to do it. We don't know. Perhaps he was still struggling with it. See how deferential Paul is to Philemon. Do you see that? He just wants all the crowns of the obedience that may happen in Philemon's life to go to him. He doesn't want to take them to himself. He frames his statements in the most positive and encouraging manner. So Philemon's mercy and forgiveness, God willing, that he'll show might be of the most pure kind, flowing from his heart and not being coerced by the most famous apostle in the history of the world. Paul now ventures a guess in verses 15 and 16. He ventures a guess as to what the sovereign hand of God just might be doing through this whole fiasco. He writes, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here's the part of the letter where Philemon's eyebrows undoubtedly are raised a bit. Excuse me? What are we reading here? He might be thinking, but he's my slave. A runaway at that. To not kill him is alone unbelievably gracious of me. But you're suggesting that I relate to him not even as a bondservant anymore, but as an equal before God the Father, a fellow brother, a sharer in the riches of Christ? My personal feelings aside, Paul, this is a tall order. But note 
that Paul doesn't have in mind this kind of cold shaking of hands, eyes down, you know, say you're sorry, now you say you're sorry, uh, now we're good type of interaction. It's not what he has in mind. Onesimus is back forever as a beloved brother. Where else have we seen that word so far? In verse 1. The same love that Paul has for Philemon is the same degree of love that Paul wants Philemon to now exhibit towards Onesimus. This deep love as a sharer in the riches of Christ and as a brother. Wow. We're pausing now in the midst of Paul's flow of thought. Not the best place to stop, but we got to stop somewhere. Right before he enters into this role of mediator, offering to do whatever's necessary to see the gospel forge this unbreakable bridge between these two estranged men. Well, we'll consider verses 17 through 25 in more detail next Sunday, but reflect with me just for a moment on what we've just observed. What can we be confident in knowing from this text? First of all, Believing the gospel is the foundation of true forgiveness. Believing the gospel is the foundation of true forgiveness. Do you want to forgive? Do you, do you know that you've wronged somebody or they've wronged you and there's this, this clear disconnect? Paul would probably tell you the same thing he told Onesimus. You need Jesus. You need the gospel. What did Onesimus ultimately need? Before Paul got his hands dirty helping resolve this precarious situation, Paul made it crystal clear he needed to be forgiven first and foremost by God. Because God is the one who's he's offended one billion times worse than Philemon. So if you're listening this morning and, and you don't know personally God's forgiveness of your sins, you must first allow your heart to soften. Soften to the reality that you have failed to live the life God intends for you to live, free of sin, perfect accordance to His law. And you have to also agree that God is perfectly justified to punish you for those sins, failing His standard of perfection. But God sent Jesus he did something about that horrible news. He now stands as our perfect mediator, kind of like the Apostle Paul is in this story, but as a perfect mediator who would die a cruel death, absorbing every ounce of God's wrath in His own substitutionary death on your behalf. He rose from the grave, and He's now seated at the throne of the Father. He now makes intercession for His children, and He does this for us. This is what God's forgiveness opens up for those who, yes, have sinned, but who repent and run to the Father. This is our ultimate need. We need God's forgiveness. The forgiveness you'll find in Christ so far outweighs the false advertising uh, that sin holds forth. And if you would know the joy of true and full forgiveness with those who've wronged you, those you have wronged, 
you have to look through the lens of God's forgiveness in the gospel. It just all starts there. Forgiveness, secondly, is expected among God's people. Forgiveness is expected among God's people. Paul had every right to command Philemon to forgive, not simply because he was an apostle, but because of what he knew about our new nature in Christ. Like he wrote to the Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Just as people have hurt you in the past, I hate to tell you this, but people will probably continue to hurt you in the future. It's just a reality of life. And just as you have undoubtedly hurt people from time to time, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you'll probably mess up a few more times in the future. So silence your inner lawyers, and just as Christ forgave you freely and unconditionally, you can now through the power of the Spirit, because of the gospel, forgive one another. Thirdly, though painful, reconciliation honors God and it fuels our joy. Though it's painful, reconciliation and forgiveness honors God and fuels our joy. So, child who has hidden a wrong from their parents teen or young adult whose conscience is just killing you because you're trying to hide a certain set of sins that's eating away at you like a cancer, adults, parents who've maybe just gone, gotten into a terrible pattern of justifying certain actions or behaviors, confessing these things, owning them, not making your con- actions conditional on the actions of the other party, all that, all these things, this act of coming, coming clean, confessing, may seem like the scariest thing in the world. And all these things may bring a real sense of humility and considerable heartache and even pain in the knowledge of one's sins. But it is seed. It is seed in the soil that will give rise to lasting joy. Like Onesimus choosing to return to Philemon in order to humbly seek forgiveness, will you turn toward your opponent and pursue forgiveness, reconciliation, knowing it rejoices the heart of God? May God help us absorb these truths, every one of us, in this short book in a highly personal manner. Every one of us have been through, are going through, will go through some situation where you absolutely need Philemon. You need to know. You need a picture. You need a story. A quick one, too, is nice to remind you of the gospel's power to transform lives, whether in salvation or in our sanctification as his people. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this little book. We don't think about it very often. Sometimes it slips away from 
our minds and, and slips into those cracks in our Bibles where we don't give much attention to it. But I, I pray by your Spirit that this would have been a helpful morning. I pray even as you bring us back according to your will next week, we'd have a refreshment in looking more at the role that Paul plays as mediator, absorbing in himself certain blows, reminiscent of the ultimate mediator who has stood in our place, Jesus Christ. Father, for those who don't know you, who are perhaps here this morning, would today be the day they call out for forgiveness like Onesimus. And though so many fears mounted around his mind and his thinking, certainly obedience to you and, and, and following through on this amazing story of reconciliation, although we don't have all the concluding facts to it, was certainly what brought you great honor and glory. Father, we pray as a church family, we'd be a forgiving people. We'd look to one another. We'd even model Paul's example of being uh, kind and deferential. And the whole book, he's so, he's so happy to give up every right and credit any good thing to Philemon's cause. Help us to live lives that are so selfless that we just demonstrate, sometimes even without knowing it, the, the love of Christ flowing through us. Help us as a church family to be good at refreshing the hearts of one another. Help us to live that out, even in the lobby afterwards or in the week to come. We pray we would commit ourselves to the spiritual success of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask all this according to your will. And in the name of Christ, amen.